0: This year's Supreme Court term has come to an end, and it has been one of the most consequential of my lifetime. I will give you all sorts of details and commentary, starting in just a moment on the Court True Act Show. Five cases I want to tell you about. Two of them are put together, so it's really more four topics for you. After some opening thoughts and some. Dwelling on the consequences of four, or I guess it's five, Supreme Court decisions that have come out in the last several days. And, of course, I hope to do that with a distinctly biblical worldview as we go. We'll do all that in just a minute. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts. I'm glad you're here. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You can find me there. You can also find me at Beachwood Church on Sunday mornings at 1030, where we meet. Throughout the entire month of July, all five Sundays, I will be getting started in a series in the book of Hebrews or the epistle to the Hebrews. You can find that content here on the podcast feed, or we'd love to see you out any given Sunday morning there at Beechwood Church. Let me give you some opening thoughts, and then we'll get into the, the details. First, I love this concept of three branches of government. Judicial, executive, legislative. I just, I just said them backwards. I should go legislative, executive, judicial. Congress makes laws, presidents enforce them, judges interpret them. If you don't know from Madison's notes, J- James Madison's notes on the convention in 1787 where the Constitution was drafted, they quote whatever prophet, can't remember right now who which prophet said, the Lord is lawgiver, the Lord is judge, the Lord is king. It is quoted in our notes on the convention of our Constitution that that is largely where the derivation of three branches of government came from. The Lord does those three things, lawgiver, judge, king, and so we wanted a system that does the same. It's just good. It's good biblical thinking to have governments that work like this. Checks and balances are good, that we get to live in a system where executives do things they're not supposed to do, and the judicial can tell them, hey, you're you're outside of the bonds of the document. Ultimately, we're not a... The document means the Constitution. We're not in a system of men. We don't we don't get ruled by men and women. We are ruled by laws. And the rule of law steps up, and these judges say, "No, you're outside of the the document. We all are a part, We are we are all subject to this document. It says you can't do these things. This is good. It's a good thing. Courts should not be super legislatures, where we go to the courts to say write the laws that we want. That's what happened in the Affordable Care Act case in 20. 20- 10? No. 12 in 2012. Just rewrote the law. That's not what they're supposed to do. They just judge. And they don't judge by their own emotions. They don't judge by their own experiences. They're not supposed to. They don't judge by their own ideology. They just look at the Constitution. They measure the case against the Constitution and rule. That's how it's supposed to be. And mostly, some good things happened this term. Let me give you the details. We'll start with first the bad decisions, and then three really good ones. Uh, Two that came out today. One, Alabama and Louisiana drew congressional maps in 2020, like you're supposed to do after every uh, every census. And the Supreme Court struck down their maps. I suspect some of you are not familiar with this process, but every 10 years there's a census, and after the census is complete, different states have different methods of redrawing their districts, their state house districts, their state senate districts, and then their congressional districts to, as best you can, evenly apportion population into those districts. And because some some states do it with a state legislature, some do it with an independent commission, there is certainly some partisanship along the way. There's gerrymandering all the way around. Very, very blue states try to keep as many blue seats as possible very very red states try to have as many red states as possible or excuse me red districts as possible that's how they draw their districts in Alabama and Louisiana did that I don't I don't I don't try to claim they didn't that they were using some other method they were trying to create what we have in South Carolina in South Carolina there are seven congressional districts six are filled by Republicans and we draw the map so that a great deal of Democratic voters are all in one district. We have that because we're just an overwhelmingly, well, I was going to say conservative, but right of center state. In Alabama and Louisiana tried to do the same thing. The Supreme Court said, "Uh uh-uh, you can't do that. And here's why. Their thinking was that in Alabama, for example, it was something like almost 25% of residents of Alabama are black. And so 25% of the districts need to be majority black. You need to look at your census data, look at ethnicity. That's the one factor you need to look at. And you need to draw your maps so that 25% of the districts are, 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 are majority black. So we're talking uh, Alabama has nine. So they, no, they have, they have 10 electoral college votes, which means they have eight house seats, 25% of eight is two, right? Two, four, six, eight. So there's that's what the Supreme Court says. That's our math. You have to have two majority black uh, congressional districts. So I want to ask back, can we think about anything else? Are there other deciding factors? Should we think about ideologies or professions or incomes? Nope, just ethnicity. Louisiana did the same thing and because Louisiana was like 20% black, it was 20% of your districts need to be majority black and so they got to draw one more. Certainly we can bemoan and it is sad how ethnically partisan the parties are. That's that's a very sad reality. But ultimately what the Supreme Court did was give in the next in the next election that gave two more seats to the Democratic Party. That's what they did in their decision. And the, the 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 very very bad thing about that is not necessarily the outcome although I don't like the outcome. It's that race was the one and only deciding factor. It's just that. We, sh- we got to find a way to get past that world. And you would think that a court, that, that I'm going down to the second case here, that just days later did away with affirmative action would realize that. There's a real contradiction on that court. A court that says... Race is such a fundamental, ethnicity is such a fundamental key to everything, you have to redraw congressional maps to make sure that you have two majority black districts in your states. Then they turn around and say, but you can't use ethnicity as a primary factor in college admissions. Those two things should match, guys. And they they did not for at least, I think it was two justices. And that's uh, another, another huge one we have we had a system up until this decision where private and public universities in this case it was UNC Chapel Hill and Harvard College could use race as a reason to let someone in a reason to admit somebody those are highly competitive universities there's only so many people that can get in and so what we found in both cases there were asian students who are saying, I am better qualified. Here's here's all of the, the data that shows that. I'm being excluded because my race doesn't get the same weight as their race. My ethnicity does not get the same weight as their ethnicity. And they were victorious. I think, in part, they were victorious because they were a much more sympathetic plaintiff than in the past. When affirmative action was challenged in the past, this happened, in the, I believe, in the 90s, it was just a white guy, I think, could have been a white girl trying to get to the University of Texas Law School. And she was an unsympathetic, he, he, I can't remember if it was a guy or a girl, unsympathetic plaintiff. In this case, it's another minority group saying we're the ones being marginalized. And then second, I, if I recall correctly from some of the classes I took in college, the reasoning in the affirmative action cases that happened in the 80s or 90s was the court was saying, we're not but 30 or 40 years away from segregation. There's a lot of damage done, and affirmative action is an appropriate tool to try to undo the legacy of that damage. And I think one of them actually said in the opinion, there might come a day where we get far enough away from all that damage done that you can do away with these practices. There is, the Ibram X. Kendi way to say it is that the only way to address past discrimination is present discrimination. We need to discriminate now against white Americans if we're ever going to make right what happened in the past. I think that's morally deficient. I was going to use a much stronger word. And he's wrong. And the Supreme Court found here that these things are wrong. Racial preferences for admission. Which might allow us to, by the way, in college admissions, to start using much more interesting and informative pieces of information on students. For those colleges that are highly selective, they only have a few spots compared to how many applicants they have, they can start getting into better data. The things you can tell by a zip code, especially the nine-digit nine version, is it, quite quite informative. The information that a student can offer about being a single-parent household or being in foster care or something like that could really be informative. It's one of my my big themes when it comes to the very real and long-lasting legacy of our sinful ethnic prejudice in the past. That sinful ethnic prejudice in the past has long-lasting economic effects. It has. The, The problems now, the inequities of now, are often because of the secondary effects that are still affecting us. It's not the current day racism. It's not the current day prejudice that's the problem. It's the secondary effects of past day prejudice. And so because now we are obsessed over the prejudice part, we never actually see what has become the real problem. The effects of past prejudice. So I can tell you this. I can give you the stats. The White kid who grows up in rural West Virginia, that part of West Virginia that goes up into Ohio and those hills and the hollers of Kentucky with a single mom, has similar life outcomes to the kid who grows up in the heart of a Midwestern city, the black kid who grew up with a single mom in, in the same kind of poverty. We actually kind of see it track that way, throughout the the '90s, as NAFTA was hollowing out the work bases in those cities. Instead of it being methamphetamine in the white communities, it was crack crack cocaine in black communities. But we saw the disintegration of families, we saw addiction, and we saw the hollowing out of of both places, Appalachia and center cities. Knowing that information, knowing poverty information, that tells us a lot. Poverty is the factor that tells us about everything else. Health outcomes, interactions with police outcomes, not necessarily sentencing, but a lot of crime statistics are correlated to poverty, not race. we got to deal with that in college admissions. You will do a lot for your culture if you want to give preference to a poor person. Not I would just be for meritocracy. We just came through preaching the the law, part of the law in the Old Testament at Beachwood Church, and there was even a law that says don't don't favor the poor, don't favor the rich, but don't favor the poor. Just look for what's right. Just look for what's true and good and just. That would be best. But I am telling you this: if you gotta, if you're gonna have an institution, do some kind of discrimination using poverty statistics, using single-parent statistics, is going to make a a much better and broad impact on your culture and country than just using ethnicity. Those are the first two. Two more. In a 6-3 decision, and I'm so glad it was 6-3, it makes it nice and clear, because this term, by the way, it's been really weird. There have been some weird coalitions. We always know how the three activist judges, Sotomayor... Kagan, and Jackson are always going to vote. They're going to vote the unconstitutional way. They're going to vote their feelings. They're not going to vote the law. We always know what those three are going to do. But in various times this term, they've been joined by Amy Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh, or they've been joined by Gorsuch, Roberts, and one other when it came to the uh, one I'm not even sure how I feel about, the Indian Child Reunification Act, or whatever that thing was called. In this case, having a full 6-3 is helpful because this court has proved itself to be not, I mean, if it is ideological, it's very middle of the road. This term has been quite middle of the road. Just the ones that I consider wins have come out very late in the cycle. So, at a 6 3 mark, the justices told the president of the United States, you can't just forgive loans. This isn't any different than the rent moratorium during COVID that the Supreme Court overturned as well. Consider the kind of country that would be. We're not any different at that point than the kingdoms of France and England 300 years ago. We're just, the executive can just declare stuff. Just say it. You don't have to pay rent anymore. You guys don't have to pay your mortgage. Okay, peace out, guys. Or just say to 40 million people, yeah, you don't have to pay. This is done. The The majority opinion, I think, was written by Roberts. Said very clearly, yeah. Whether Whether you like the idea or not, some of you might even like the idea. That's cool. You, you can't have it this way. Congress would have to do it. The Congress of the United States would need to pass a law. The people's representatives would need to write and pass a law. And the president would need to sign it. The president can't just do whatever he wants. Got to put the executive back in its box. And that was a, 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 that's a really good outcome. It's a very just outcome. It's the right thing to do that if you take out a loan, you should pay it back. It should not be my responsibility. Like I, I get almost mad thinking about it. I think about people in my church who don't have college degrees who work so hard. The idea that they would pay off the debt of the of the engineer who makes more than twice that couple, or at least you know one and a half times what that couple makes, that's just wrong. It's wrong to take from middle class households with no college degrees, and then go to households who are middle-upper class with these degrees and just pay off their stuff? That's wrong. It's not right. And it's good that the justices did that for both uh, for both reasons, saying to the executive, you don't have the power to do this, but then also saying it's wrong. It, the ruling actually does not make any other moral statements. It just says the president doesn't have the power, but it's good that the decision came down that day. Down, Excuse me, down that way. Final one. Is the uh, Creative Three Hundred Three versus Alenis case? This was the most important case of the cycle to me. I was very much in, had some very much, a lot of interest in the student loan forgiveness case, but this is the big one for me. The plaintiff in this case, w- the story is actually quite convoluted. I've heard two different stories. I've heard one story that says this woman is trying to start a website that she wants to design websites for people getting married. So wedding websites. We had me and my wife had one of those, you know, this time last year as we were ramping up to get married. She's going to use her artistic graphic design skills to do that. And she knows that Colorado has a, as a law and a human rights commission that says you got to take every customer, including customers that want to have gay weddings and that she preemptively sued. Like you're 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 causing me not to be able to go into business because I know what's going to happen to me. I've heard that story, and I've also heard she was actually asked to do a website, refused, and then was tried to be penalized, and then she sued against being penalized. Whatever the truth is on how it originated, the court again six three praise the Lord ruled that you can't do that. You can't punish somebody for not wanting to be involved in your wedding. Very dishonestly, Justice Sotomayor wrote in her dissent that uh, the quote was: "We can now." The ruling allows to refuse t- service to members of a protected class. It's not true. It's a lie. It, the ruling doesn't say you can now discriminate against. You can tell someone that is in a quote protected class get out. You can't come into my restaurant. You can't come into into my establishment. I mean, one, I would just say there shouldn't be protected classes. That's already an unjust concept. But no, the, the decision doesn't do that at all. She makes wedding websites. If, these, if, if some gay couple, gay person came and wanted some other kind of website and she just refused to work with a gay person, let's have that discussion. She should be allowed to do that. You should be allowed to choose who you work with and some of the language of the decision is helpful in that it wasn't just that they didn't just make the distinction that this was a wedding that they wanted her involved in they make the distinction about artistic expression that she she is a graphic designer she can't be asked to be made she cannot be compelled to make art for things she disagrees with I'm sitting here in my studio recording. It's where I keep my piano in the house. I sat at that piano, and I wrote a song for my wife for our wedding. It cannot be the case that someone can come to me and say, you must write a song for our gay wedding. Of course you shouldn't be able to do that. You cannot say to the painter, I demand that you paint this scene, whatever scene it is, that you don't want to draw because it is sinful. You cannot be... Just because your doors are open as a painter, because you're on Instagram taking a request, you don't have to say yes to everybody. The illustration I've always given is the caterer. The the caterer who hates guns gets asked by a local NRA chapter to cater their event. I, of course, want the caterer to be able to say no. Just because they have an open business doesn't mean they should be required to work with anyone they want to work with. That's backwards, unjust, and horrific. So the court made the right decision that you cannot be required to use your voice, your artistic expression, for something you disagree with. We need to go even farther in the future and just kind of lay out. Religious liberty is actually in the Constitution. Sexual liberty is not in the Constitution. It's a thing you guys have made up in the last 30 years, that sex and sexuality should be the centerpiece of your humanity. That's not in the Western tradition. That's not in the post-Enlightenment tradition. That's not in the Christian or Jewish tradition. There is no tradition except our modern-day paganism that says sex and sexuality is the center of someone's humanity. Religious practice actually is the the center of of humanity. And I, I want the precedent set. When religious liberty pops up against your sexual desires and your sexual identity, religious liberty wins. It is, the le- it is the legitimate liberty rooted in history and the sexual liberation movement is just one vapid piece of our cultural moment of vast vapidity. Those are the stories. Some bad, some good, and I am grateful for that last one. And I always make this point to finish. When we get good religious liberty, decisions it's always good for us Christians to hear, all right, well, you're free. You should use that. We're still free to say what 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 the Bible says. We're still free to be Christians in public and have businesses. So let us not live frivolous lives. Let us not live focused on being salt and light in the world. Eventually, maybe these liberties go away. I don't, that doesn't have to happen. But if they do, I don't want to squander the good gift we have been given. I think I'll be back early next week with another episode. There's a a division roiling inside the American church about whether or not Christians should just leave secular progressive areas. Just move your families, gather together, abandon those places to the consequences of their actions. Uh, There's sometimes pretty nasty back and forth on Twitter about that. I want to address that in the next episode and maybe a couple other things too. I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey True Act Show sometime here soon. Until then everybody, peace and love.